Our text today is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Hear now God's word. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Last time we saw that the Apostle Paul was reminding the Christians at Ephesus that regardless of who they were when they were born, whether they were Jews or Gentiles, they were not, that they now had a new identity in Jesus Christ. Most of you have heard me speak this way in regard to church membership. Before you joined the church, when you were a visitor, uh, it would be certainly appropriate for you to ask questions in this way. Why do you all do this or that? After you become a member, you might have the same question, but the question now has to be phrased in a different way, and so you would ask the question, why do we do this or that? Once you become part of the church, part of the local congregation, it's now the pronouns change. It's now not y'all, if I can use our southernism, uh, but we. Why do we do this? In Christ, it is no longer you versus us, but it is now we. Paul is now going to expand on how this has come about, and he tells us that Christ has become our peace. Now, the opposite of peace is enmity, and the word enmity just uh, means animosity. Paul says in Romans the carnal mind is enmity against God, is hostile toward God. In this epistle, Paul opened with a prayer in chapter 1, asking that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened and that they might know what is, that they might know what is the exceeding greatness of the power of God to the, toward us who believe. In other words, it requires supernatural enlightenment to overcome the enmity that naturally exists between us and God. Perhaps I should pause here and ask if you have had that prayer answered in your life in some measure. Has the light come on for you in regard to what it means to be in Christ? Has the reality of God's work in your life powerfully been realized by you as well as by those who know you? In chapter 2, Paul has dealt with our condition. He has told us that we were dead in trespasses and sins, under the influence and power of the devil, as well as our own lust, under the wrath of God. And that was the diagnosis. Moreover, there was also a division, he said, between the Jews and the Gentiles. There were those who were in the covenant with the promises, which of course included the promise of Christ. And then there were those who were outside the covenant and without Christ and without the promises. Those were the two big classifications of people on the earth. 
But God, we see, moved to remedy both of these problems. He was always working to rescue and redeem the world. Dispensationalism has inculcated this false notion that God had a plan A, and He was working with the Jews, and that didn't work out, and so He at least put that on the shelf for now, and He came up with plan B, and plan B is the church, plan B includes the Gentiles, and He'll get back to plan A later in history. But this kind of artificial division that is frankly not taught in the Bible. God made it clear from the beginning that those who were far off always were in His view. They were part of plan A also. Now, the text begins with the word for. For He is our peace. And this ties now this section that we're looking at today with these previous sections. For He Himself is our peace. Peace, you see, is the goal of salvation. It is a description of salvation. Peace between us and God. We were under His wrath. There was enmity between us and God. Hostility. And now there is peace. Christ is our peace. Hebrews 13, 20-21 says, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight. So it's God's work from beginning to end. We've seen multiple times in, already in Ephesians when all seemed hopeless, then we would have those great words, but God. God did something. God changed the circumstances. God sent Christ. He sent His Son to reconcile us while we were sinners while we were under His wrath, while we were helpless and hopeless. This peace is accomplished only through His Son, Jesus Christ. He is our peace. As Jacob blessed his sons and their tribes, he comes to do so for Judah. And here's what he says about the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Remember, this is the tribe Jesus comes from nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. What was this Shiloh? Shiloh literally means the peaceful one. That This peaceful one was to come, and that peaceful one was Christ himself. He was not only called the king of righteousness, he was called the prince of peace. Now many people... Uh, I think for a very long time, but certainly it's true in our own day, they want a version of Christianity that they describe as positive. They want to think positive things. We don't want to hear about all the negative stuff, things like sin and blood atonement. That's, a, that's particularly offensive. The idea that someone would have to die for you, a human sacrifice. How barbaric can you get I know of one large church that did a survey in their community of visitors and what would it take to get people to come to church. And they they came to the conclusion that people didn't like hearing negative things. And so they determined that on Sunday mornings they would not ever speak of things like the cross or the atonement or death or sin because that was a downer. People didn't like that. But we bring them in with positive things and encouraging things 
And then once they were there, then on Sunday nights or Wednesday nights, then we could introduce them to these other less appealing things. Well, of course, that's nonsense. The Bible is not ashamed or bashful about talking about these so-called negative things, but certain people only want to hear about the love of God, they say. But you see, the love of God is only seen and known by becoming aware first of the so-called negative things. The Bible, including this epistle, emphasizes the so-called negative things. We have to start with a true diagnosis of our condition before we can fully appreciate the depth of God's love and His work in rescuing us. Paul has shown us how sin leads to separation and death. First, it separates us from God. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were separated from God. They didn't walk with God anymore. They hid from God, in fact, and God drove them out of the garden. There was clearly a separation because of sin. But it also separates us from one another. Generally, but more particularly by groups, we see separation. We see this between the Jews and the Gentiles. We see it in other races. We see it in other classifications of humanity. There is division everywhere. It's sin. More than separation, verse 14 tells us, that it wasn't just that we were apart, that we were in different camps, but that there was actual enmity between us, hostility between us. Sin, you see, is far, far worse than we imagine. We spend a lot of time either dismissing, ignoring, uh, perhaps a bit of self-deception, and certainly minimizing our sins, treating them lightly, The Bible never treats them lightly. You see, the wages of sin is death. And at the essence essence of death is separation. Hell is eternal separation from God. Eternal death. And so sin is far worse. It is ugly. It is devastating. This is the problem with the whole world. Is that that true or false? That's a fundamental question that has to be answered. You see, it's true between the classes of people, rich and poor, the races, races, ethnicities, nations, regions, parties, neighbors, family members. There is constant strife. Constant enmity. The world is also full of attempts to remedy the problem, but to no avail. We have science, right? You put our hope in science. Science is going to make it all better. Education. In the early days of public education in America, we were told that we we wouldn't need prisons by now. We could empty all the prisons and everything would be taken care of if we could only have compulsory state education. Technology. We have a world awash in technology. We all have it in our pockets. It's all around us. Diplomacy. But you see, none of these have made any advances in taking away the enmity. 
Don't you find the internet to be such a lovely place? Full of grace and kindness, understanding, charity, fellowship. Or do you find it vicious and nasty and foul? Hadn't technology helped? No, it's amplified, but it hasn't helped. If anything, the enmity has only increased. We have a megaphone now for that. Sin is the problem, and underneath every sin is the sin of pride. It is the core sin. We find this laid out for us in the book of beginnings. In Genesis, man and woman, Adam and Eve, wanted to be autonomous. Our first parents. Who is this God to tell us what to do? And if you'll look around you, you'll see that at every issue, if you look at every issue, you'll find that this is the question at the core. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I thought, had an excellent description of the problem in this way. He says, man said Satan, said Satan to man, you do not realize how big you are, how great you are. God is keeping you like a slave and using you like a servant. Why do you not stand up for yourself? Why do you not assert yourself? Why do you not stand on your dignity and demand your rights? Do not be put down. Stand up. And he stood up. And I don't want to be paradoxical, but it was because man stood up that he fell. He was standing in a way in which he was never meant to stand. He was trying to stand in a way that he could not stand. And it led to the fall and all of its appalling consequences. It is all due to pride, self-interest, self-concern. Man sets himself up as a god. He thinks he, he, thinks he is an autonomous being that he has a right, he talks about his rights and his demands, that is simply a manifestation of self-interest, self-adulation, self-love, self-praise. He is constantly turning in upon himself and revolving around himself. He is the center. Yes, but unfortunately, all men are doing the same thing. And that is where the trouble comes in. If I alone existed, there would be no trouble. But every other I is exactly the same as I am. The result is that the world is peopled by a number of gods, all asserting themselves and demanding their rights and claiming the same things. It is inevitable that there should be clashes. It is a war of the false gods. You see... Uh, well, I was recommended by one of our church members that I listened to a podcast by Rosaria Butterfield, a former lesbian and leader of the LGBT movement, and I mean a leader, who was converted to Christ and is now the wife of a Reformed Presbyterian minister and mother of four. She said that at the beginning of her awakening, and she's an intellectual, teaches in universities, she said at the beginning of her awakening, of her conversion, it came by asking certain questions. What if the Bible is true? 
What if there is a supernatural answer? What if sin and rebellion against God are the problem? What if pride is behind it all? And she said, I couldn't help but think of my house, which was filled with gay pride paraphernalia, t-shirts, coffee mugs, posters. You see, the world is blind to its blindness. It has ruled out up front the only answer to the problem. God must be expelled from the universe to make room for us. But all of mankind's problems are due to his broken relationship with God and then flowing from that his broken relationship with other people. And thus, when Jesus was asked by a lawyer what the greatest commandment was, he summarized the whole thing. He summarized the whole Bible. He summarized everything and he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said there's a second commandment, very similar, comes in second, just like it. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You see, the first had to do with man's relationship to God, and the second had to do with man's relationship to other people. And if we try to leave out the first, we can never have the second. You can't even love yourself until you love God. We were made by God, and we were made for God. And so we have the words of the Apostle, Christ is our peace. He alone is our peace. Without Him, there can be no peace. There can be no personal peace. There can be no other kind of peace. The world, cannot, the world can make advances in knowledge, in science, and in technology but it can never solve the fundamental problem. Before a person can be trained, he has to first be healed. Christ himself is our peace. Jesus said to him, that is to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. What an exclusive claim. That's either the most arrogant claim made by any man ever, or it's true, because he is who he is, the Son of God, God himself. No man comes to the Father but by him. In other words, we must be incorporated into Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man, before we can have peace with God. We need a mediator because there is enmity between us and God. There is a war. And we need somebody to negotiate peace. And in this case, because we're the sinful faction, not God, we need to surrender. All the mediation has to be on God's terms. He sent the mediator. And we need to lay down our arms. Therefore, Romans 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The whole picture of the tabernacle was that the holy God built a house in the midst of his people, but they were unholy and they couldn't come in. They needed to be cleansed of their sins and their guilt. And all the sacrifices and the priesthood were meant to show us Christ, who is our ultimate high priest and who is our ultimate sacrifice. And once the sin is removed, once the enmity is removed, then we can sit down and eat together. Imagine there's been some rift between two parties, some enmity, some conflict in a friendship. An invitation to a feast would be a declaration of peace and a fellowship on the part of the person giving the feast or the meal. Likewise, the one who accepted that invitation would be acknowledging that the breach is healed and that that while there was enmity, now there is peace. Hey, sometimes it's as casual as, let's go have lunch together. Come on over to our house and let's have a meal together. In fact, the message of feasting is so universal and natural. We find that Scripture is full of the symbolism of eating and drinking, and especially feasting. It, is express, it expresses precisely the same ideas of reconciliation, of friendship, of communion between the giver of the feast and the guest. In the prophecy in Isaiah 25, which describes the final redemption of the long estranged nations, we read what God shall, uh, we read that when God shall destroy uh, uh, Mount Zion, here's what we read, the veil that is spread over the nations and, and swallowed up death forever, then the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wine on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the leaves. He not only is our peace, though, the text tells us he also makes peace. He clears the way for us to do something. He clears the way by removing the enmity, removing the sin. He does something so that we are then able to do something. He, verse 14, he has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Now, Paul is using this as an image of what was literally true in the temple. King Herod had built a series of covered columns around the outer court of the temple, and it was called the Court of the Gentiles. Gentiles could walk in this area, but they were forbidden to go inside into what was called the inner court. Warning signs, according to Josephus, were posted in both Greek and Latin, stating that the penalty for trespassing was death. That's how serious this separation was. You better not step one toe into the inner court. Even Roman citizens could face this penalty. In fact, it was for this alleged offense in Acts 21 that Paul uh, had allegedly allowed Greeks to violate the inner court. That was not true, but that was the accusation. 
And as a result, he was nearly beaten to death by an angry crowd during his last visit to Jerusalem. That's how serious this breach, this division was. There were other partitions in the temple, including the one between the holy place and the holy of holies, where only the high priest could go in once a year. There were all kinds of partitions, if you will, in regard to the temple. But in Christ, Paul says, all of these partitions have been knocked down, and now everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike, have access to the Holy of Holies, to God Himself. No more dividing walls. Jesus did this by having abolished in his flesh, that is, in his incarnate being, the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. That's a mouthful, but let me come back and unpack that just a bit. How did Jesus abolish this enmity, this division, these ceremonies, you see, separated Jews and Gentiles? The outward requirements of the ceremonial law, which divided Jew from Gentile, was removed by the work of Christ on the cross. He fulfilled all the requirements of the law. Access through Jesus Christ is now available to everyone who comes through him. There, Hebrews 10.26, there now no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's no longer a need to sacrifice animals. Because Jesus has come. Those were there to point to Jesus. Now that he has come, that's not needed any longer. The work of Jesus is complete. Thus, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And there is no more. You understand, in 70 A.D., when the temple was leveled, that since that time, there not only hasn't been a temple, there's not been a priesthood. All the genealogical records were destroyed. Aaron's descendants, we don't know who they are. And there have been no animal sacrifices, none. God himself brought about the destruction that that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24 and 25. When when the disciples were looking on, on this wonder of the world, this temple, this amazing structure that Herod had built... Within 40 years after he said that, no one could have imagined when Jesus said this, that this would actually happen. It was raised to the ground. It was completely destroyed. Why? It wasn't needed anymore. He did this, verse 16, in order that he might reconcile them both, that is, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. By his blood, he not only removes the enmity, he creates a new humanity. Verse 15, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So he's not blending two, he is he's starting over. He's beginning and creating a new man in himself. Christ, for example, is now our tabernacle. Christ is our high priest. Christ is the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice. He's the substance. He fulfilled all of that. And not only that, 
He's also made us. His people, because we're in Him. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. We, too, are priests. We, too, are living sacrifices. And Hebrew, the book of Hebrews elaborates on this in chapter 8. For if that first covenant had been faultless, in other words, if it was able to do the job, then no place would have been sought for a second. We don't need to improve anything. We just keep on doing the way it was always done in the Old Testament. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, you remember in the Old Testament, you had to have atonement every year, because those sins didn't go away. And so there was this constant need for atonement. But once Christ comes, the sins are done away with forever. He sits down at the right hand of the Father. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish. I mean, you put a little historical context when the book of Hebrews is being written here. This is before the destruction of Jerusalem. But God essentially gave 40 years of transition from the time of the death of Christ to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. You have about 40 years, about a generation of transition. But God says, I'm going to give you some time to adjust to the new covenant. And then I'm going to destroy the temple. It's not needed anymore. It's obsolete. You've graduated The Gentiles are no longer excluded. The Jew no longer has a reason for his false pride. Romans 10.4, For Christ is the end or objective of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ has fulfilled it all. All that in the Old Testament was a shadow of what was real. Now the real thing, the substantive thing is here. We don't need tutors, as Paul talks about in regard to the Old Testament ceremonial law to lead us to Christ. Christ is here. We don't need kindergarten teachers. We don't need elementary school teachers. We don't need junior high. We have the Master. In Christ, you are all welcomed to come into the presence of God because Christ is our peace. Commentator Brian Chapel observed, It is as though we get to watch at the dawn of the creation of a new humanity. And recognize that this dawn reflects the dawn of the eternal day. In the coming together of different persons, we have the delight of pre-glimpsing the heavenly scene where the great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language will gather as one before the throne of God to wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. One last thought here. The adoption of a child, and this picture perhaps is intensified if we were perhaps to imagine someone adopting a child of another race. 
It's a beautiful demonstration of this kind of unifying peace. It takes an orphan child and unites the child with the parents so that both the natural siblings and the adopted child are now both children in the same family. As I recall the adoption of Nathan and the judge asking, in effect, this question to the parents, do you intend to treat this child as though he were born in your family? That's the picture of salvation. All kinds of people from all kinds of places and races and nations and circumstances and backgrounds, all of them brought together into the same family. I grew up, perhaps many of you did, maybe we still sing it, um, with the children's song, Jesus Loves the Little Children. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Well, all of his people are little children in his sight. For he himself is our peace, who has made us one. Let's pray. Father, help us to see so that the eyes of our understanding will be enlightened and that we might know what is the exceeding greatness of your power toward us who believe. Help us to comprehend this peace that is ours in Christ and to embrace the communion that you have given all of us together in him. May these truths not remain obscure, uh, obscure on the edge, but may they become central to our thinking and our living each day. May they be demonstrated in our marriages and with our children. May the world see in us and in our church this gracious work that you have begun in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the New Testament, the symbols of sitting down like they are in the Old Testament uh, to eat together are used repeatedly by our Lord. For example, in the parable of the Great Supper that we find in Luke chapter 24, and the prodigal son in Luke 25, and then again the marriage of the king's son found in Matthew 22. As we come to the Lord's table, I hope that you will see it as the place where you and God, along with all of your brothers and sisters in Christ, Come to commune. He has appointed this table to be a continual reminder of our relation to Himself and a means of reminding us of the death of Christ through our eating of the flesh of the Lamb of God and the drinking of His blood, the blood of the new covenant. Therefore, God ordained the eating of the peace offering in Israel to be the symbolic expression of of peace and fellowship with himself. It was to be eaten before the Lord. It was to be eaten with rejoicing. Indeed, Christ himself is our peace, and he has created one new man from us all. 
thus making peace that he might reconcile us all to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. I want you to think about this a bit. I always want us to take come to our trip to the table. Every trip ought to be a little bit different. It ought to be the same in many ways, but it ought to be different in this sense. This week was different. Next week will be different. We're at different stages in our lives. We have different conditions. Some are married, some are single, some have children, some people's children are grown. We work in different places. We're going through different things physically and spiritually. And so God's Word is is a living Word. We'd always be making application of the truths that it teaches us. So if Christ has removed the enmity, what does that look like in your life? How does that show itself at work, in your relationship to other people, in your marriage, with your kids, with your parents? How's that going? Is, Is there a lot of peace or is there still a lot of enmity? Well, if there's enmity anywhere, then we have a calling in Christ to address that. To bring his peace to that situation. To act like Christ in those circumstances. As a husband, a wife, a mother, father, a worker, a friend, a neighbor, whatever. So this is not just a ritual we're going through here. This is a reminder and if you're not reminded, then it hasn't worked. You've, it, it, didn't, it didn't do what it was supposed to do. It, it's supposed to remind us that Jesus did what? That he made peace and reconciled us, that has brought us all to God in one body, one communion, through the cross, and he put to death the enmity, the selfishness, the pride. Now, he wants us to go out as his body, as his people, and represent him in the world, in all those relationships. So let us think about that as we eat and as we drink and as we remember. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation, his righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. For in the resurrection of Jesus, the victory has been won. O happy day, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? O Lord, bless this Lord's day. May it be a day of rest and renewal. Bless now our extended feast and communion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Amen.